Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. We don't want to have a theocracy. We are a very diverse and religiously pluralistic society. The First Amendment, as we understand it, was to be a shield for religious free exercise, for worship, for prayer, for thought, for people to be, to be able to exercise their religion in, in their own way, but not to be turned from that shield into a weapon against other people. That's the basic idea, and we think it's as true and important today as it was when the country was founded. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. There are some religious people, congregations, and religions that support LGBTQ people. In the Episcopal Church, Bishop Gene Robinson was the first openly gay bishop, but his consecration led to a worldwide split in the church over the issue of homosexuality. In New York City, Congregation Beit Simchat Torah is an LGBTQ welcoming synagogue with an openly gay leader, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum. Both Bishop Jean and Rabbi Kleinbaum were guests on earlier editions of Outcasting. You can listen to their interviews on our website, outcastingmedia.org. But historically, many religions have condemned LGBTQ people. The Catholic Church has described homosexuality as an intrinsic disorder and encouraged people to condemn the sin, not the sinner. As if people can just rip sexuality out of their lives without inflicting great harm on themselves. Any number of religious counselors continue to practice conversion or reparative therapy to cure people of being gay, even as a growing number of states, and even some other countries, recognize that this treatment is ineffective and potentially dangerous. We did a series in early 2020 on conversion therapy. It's also available at outcastingmedia.org. As the law is catching up with growing public acceptance of LGBTQ people, and as we have secured a number of important civil rights, there's a movement determined to firmly put us back in our place, as they would have it. Cake shops and florists claim that they're entitled to deny their services to us because they say that providing services to LGBTQ people would violate their religious liberty. This discrimination would never be seen as legitimate if it were directed at other minority groups. Just imagine it. A cake shop owner says, My religious liberty prevents me from serving black people, or Jewish people, so go away. It's unthinkable that that would be seen as acceptable in today's world. And of course, there are businesses where the stakes would be much higher if it becomes a law that businesses can just turn away LGBTQ people based on a religious objection. So is there any legitimacy when a business owner cites religious liberty to justify denying service to LGBTQ people? What are the contours of religious liberty? What's supposed to happen when someone citing religious liberty discriminates against LGBTQ people, thus denying their equality? What does equality mean in the United States? Does one take precedence over the other when equality and religious liberty come into conflict? This is the third part of our conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer. Jenny is a senior counsel and director of law and policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. In earlier parts of this series, 
Jenny and Alcaster Lucas have been talking about how religious liberty and LGBTQ equality can coexist peacefully under the Constitution, but also how the guarantee of equality hasn't yet made LGBTQ people truly equal. Jenny, welcome back to Outcasting. Lucas, it's a pleasure. So good to be with you. Are there laws at any of these levels that permit discrimination against LGBTQ people or seek to prohibit the enactment of anti-discrimination laws? Yes, I'm afraid there are. One example of that type of law is something that was passed by the state of Arkansas a few years ago, where there were local protections passed at the city or county level, and legislators at the state level passed a law to do what we call preempt the local law. In other words, it said that type of protection can only be passed at the state level. The local government does not have the authority anymore to pass that kind of law. And certainly when the Arkansas legislature passed that bill and it was signed into law, it was understood by everyone as a successful effort to wipe away the local protections for LGBT people. But when it was done, it had to be facially neutral. It had to say, this type of regulation will only happen at the state level. It can happen. Any of this type of civil rights protection can happen for any basis of discrimination, but it has to happen at the state level. So that's a contrast between what happened back in 1992 in Colorado when there was a voter measure that treated protections for LGB people, for lesbians, gay men, and bisexual people, differently from other types of civil rights protections. This was a voter measure that changed the state constitution to make it harder for LGBT people, or I should, at that point it was LGB people, to get civil rights protection. So everybody else could seek protections at the local level, but LGB people had to go to the state level. And that different treatment written into the Constitution was something that we challenged, and it went ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was the occasion, really the first time, that the U.S. Supreme Court had recognized equality rights for LGB people under the Equal Protection Clause. That was a case called Romer. And the Supreme Court said, well, look, you're singling out this group of people for unequal treatment in the very process of trying to achieve equality. And that violates the Equal Protection Clause. So yes, there are examples of efforts that specifically permit discrimination. And certain ways of doing it, unfortunately, are allowed. And other ways of doing it are not allowed. It is a problem, though. We especially are seeing this at the state and local level across the country, in parts of the country that are more conservative, where we have not yet been able to secure protections at the state level, the ferment, the organizing, the process of change usually does start at the local level first. And then after we've accomplished enough of that organizing and success at the local level, then usually we're able to move to the state level. But this kind of preemption and blocking effort sometimes interferes. And that means in a place like Arkansas, that law then means the activity has to succeed at the state level It's going if it's going to happen in that state. State and local laws are probably supposed to originate in the states or localities themselves. But there are groups like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, that have been involved in generating legislative efforts against the equality of LGBT people. Can you tell us about them? Yes. Well, ALEC 
sometimes has been best known as focusing on the interests of corporations or employers in particular. They develop model legislation and then they identify and work with leaders within often state legislatures to promote these model bills. And a number of years ago, there came to be some partnering with people at ALEC together with some social conservative groups, some of which were religiously motivated and others had other socially conservative motives who wanted to try to block and push back efforts from some people in our movement to achieve equality. And so we did see model legislative proposals, a number of which were forwarded and and supported by folks at ALEC, cropping up from state to state, and we would recognize that the language looked awfully similar to proposals we had seen in other places. Now, I will say that more recently, we've seen less of this from ALEC, which again, as I said, usually focuses on business interests and the interests of employers. We've seen this same model legislation problem coming from some of the other groups, groups like the so-called Alliance Defending Freedom, which focuses on a range of religious conservative and I think often identify as Christian fundamentalist goals, one of which is blocking LGBT equality. They have some other goals as well. I mean, they are ardently opposed to various types of reproductive health care, and they are advancing prayer in public schools. So their, their goals are many, but they do some of the same type of work as what Alec does. They have some legal scholars that work with them, and they have policy, people that do policy development. And then what we see is a proposal that may crop up in one state, and then we'll see very similar language in another state and another state. And what we've seen is sort of year to year, the proposals sometimes will evolve. So for example, there was a period of time where we saw Religious Freedom Restoration Act type bills proposed in different states. We saw this in Arizona. We saw it in Indiana. Some folks may remember that that Mike Pence, when he was governor, was um, in a, a public spotlight because he was ardently supporting that state RIFRA proposal explicitly because he thought it was a good idea that businesses should have religious rights to turn away LGBT people. The language that the Indiana legislature passed and then amended was very similar to language that we saw in some other states. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Well, sometimes we have felt quite flattered because this idea of having model non-discrimination language has been echoed in a bit of a through-the-looking-glass way when we see bills to expand religious rights to discriminate cropping up state to state, and and we we know what that some of the sources are the same place. So you mentioned that there are several of these ALEC-type groups. How are they funded? Well, generally speaking, it's private funding. Now, for ALEC, my understanding is that many of the members, their businesses are members, and they pay dues, and that can add up to quite a bit of resources. For organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom or the First Liberty Institute or the Beckett Fund, there's quite a few of them. The Family Research Council, some of the organizations do policy work and also litigate. Some of them just do policy advocacy, but generally they receive private donations. In that sense, they're certainly free to do that work. 
However, the problem from our perspective is often we don't know what the sources of that funding is, and they are advocating to tilt the balance in a way that we think is inappropriate, that in a way that will allow increased harm. I mean, a religious license to discriminate is about freedom of one group of people to cause harm to another group of people. And really, our legal system has had, as I said before, has had a good framework to provide an appropriate fair balance that there's religious freedom, but not freedom to harm others, uh, and that everybody should have the same rights. And, and so these organizations that amass considerable amounts of private funding and deploy that funding to try to change the rules to allow discrimination, that can create a real problem for, for our LGBT communities. Do you think there's anything unseemly about these groups and the way that they work? Well, I think we all have freedom of speech. We all have the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. These are First Amendment rights that we all have. So I don't know that I would say that it's unseemly exactly, but it it calls upon all of us who believe in equality for everyone and freedom for everyone and protection from harm by others for us to engage and speak out and do our own advocacy to have laws that protect everybody fairly and that maintain a good balance of, of freedom of belief for everyone, but that has conduct regulated so that people are not harmed. Freedom of speech has been among the critical rights that has allowed the LGBTQ movement to advance, and we would never advocate that anyone's freedom of speech would be would be curtailed based on the substance of what people are advocating. We do believe that the best answer to bad ideas, and we think these this gross expansion of religious rights is a bad idea, that the best answer to that is a good idea of protecting freedom of belief and worship, but not religion-based discrimination in the public sphere, that the public marketplace needs to be open to everybody on fair terms. Those, we think, are the powerful ideas that, that we at Lambda Legal are aiming to share and engage more people in the conversation, because really the, the best situation for all of us is to have a, a robust public conversation and come to good, strong consensus that, again, we're not living in a theocracy. We don't want to have a theocracy. We are a very diverse and religiously pluralistic society that we need to have a public arena that allows minority religions to have equal space, that doesn't allow dominant religions to set the rules that restrict anyone, and and certainly that religion is not used as a weapon against anybody else. It's come to be a common framing of the idea, but I'll, I'll repeat it anyway, even if it might have become a bit of a cliche. The First Amendment, as we understand it, was to be a shield for religious free exercise, for worship, for prayer, for thought, for people to be, to be able to exercise their religion in, in their own way, but not to be turned from that shield into a weapon against other people. That's the basic idea, and we think it's as true and important today as it was when the country was founded. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens 
when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Lucas is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. So let's turn now to more recent developments in LGBTQ and religious liberty law. Until fairly recently, the last 25 years or so, starting with the Romer case, Supreme Court rulings haven't been particularly supportive of LGBTQ equality. You mentioned Bowers v. Hardwick. Can we talk about that? Absolutely. Well, so Bowers v. Hardwick was a, a case that came about because Michael Hardwick, a bartender, was given a citation because one night when he was at work, he was taking a break in an alleyway and drinking a beer, and a police officer came by, saw him drinking a beer outside, and gave him a ticket for drinking in public. And apparently, Michael didn't pay up his citation or do whatever he was supposed to do. And so it came to pass that a police officer came to his house to serve him with a warrant. Well, Michael had a housemate who answered the door, and the police officer said, is Michael home? And the Housemate said, sure, he's back, his room is back there. And the police officer went to the bedroom door, which apparently was not fully closed, and saw Michael in bed with another man. Now, the way the story gets told, the officer didn't knock on the door right away and interrupt them. He stood there for a while, so that's a little bit curious. But he observed what the two gentlemen were doing and then arrested Michael for violating Georgia's law against same-sex sexual relationships among adults. Again, in the privacy of Michael's own bedroom, he was violating Georgia state law. We refer to those those laws as sodomy laws. Now, at the beginning of the LGBT movement, if we talk about you know the the early and mid and late sixties, those laws were across the whole country. I mean, they're laws that dated from Victorian England and. They came to the United States, and we we had them. But by the time Michael Hardwick was arrested, about half of the states had gotten rid of those laws, but Georgia had not. Within the LGBT movement, those criminal laws were seen as an important problem, an important thing to get rid of. And there had been important test cases that had gone to the Supreme Court developing this right of sexual privacy, this right of individual autonomy and freedom, freedom to access birth control information, which had been illegal as being obscene, freedom to access medical care, including abortion services as part of a woman's right to control her own body. There had been a series of Supreme Court decisions recognizing this important right to privacy. And so lawyers within the LGBT movement, including some former colleagues at Lambda Legal, my my predecessors, and some of the people actually that were my teachers when I was a law student back in the mid-80s, they were focused on this developing line of constitutional decisions as the natural way to attack these criminal sodomy laws. Really, the phrasing many people used at the time was that we were all unindicted felons in any state that had one of these laws. And it it was much like what we had much later in terms of the marriage laws that, you know, you would be a criminal in one state, cross state lines, it's a free state, cross state lines, then you're a criminal again. Kind of a, a crazy situation to have in modern America. 
So the lawyers in the movement recognized the Hardwick case as possibly one of the best opportunities at that time to challenge this kind of criminal law. Now, they recognized that the Supreme Court had been becoming a bit more conservative over time, and it seemed like, well, it might be a little early, but on the other hand, if we wait for another case, and these cases didn't come up that often because usually the police are not in our bedrooms, that maybe we better take a chance and do this case because they don't come up that often, and it seemed that the court was becoming more conservative. The curious and poignant story of the Hardwick case is that there's a wonderful dissenting opinion that apparently was intended to be the majority opinion written by Justice Blackman. And it talks about freedom and the dignity of the person, and it follows on the previous cases. But it was the dissenting opinion. And the opinion that became the opinion of the court written by Justice White was not about respect and freedom of the person. It cited the Bible. It cited millennia of moral teaching. It was condemning and contemptuous. And there was a concurring opinion written by the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Berger, that had a similar condemning and contemptuous tone. And the story that is told is that Justice Powell changed his vote, that he had originally said that he intended to vote that this was an unconstitutional law. And then when the time finally came, he wasn't convinced that it was really appropriate to strike the law down. Maybe that was interfering too much with the state's ability to have criminal laws. He said he didn't know any gay people and he didn't really see these laws as that much of a problem. The tragedy of that moment as the story is told, is that actually one of his law clerks at the time was a closeted gay man. And you can understand how that cycle would happen because there was such social opprobrium, such social stigma to being gay at the time, let alone to being trans. And there were criminal laws. And in some places, if you were known to be a gay person, you couldn't get a license to practice law. There were real consequences to being out. And yet, because people were not out, those with the decision-making power didn't understand how much it mattered. Now, that bad decision in the Bowers versus Hardwick case was then cited for years after that as justification for other types of discrimination, for discrimination in employment, for court rulings taking custody of children away from lesbian and gay parents, for military policy, for a range of other types of discrimination, whether or not a person was known to have engaged in any particular sexual activity, but instead as a marker by the government of moral illegitimacy and illegitimacy as a person. It was a huge problem. And what that meant was that as a movement, we had to step back and regroup, and we then proceeded to do quite a lot of work in the states and in state legislatures and also in state courts under state constitutions to erode the the basis in law and also in public thinking to legitimate the idea that a group of people can be made criminals based on somebody else's religious beliefs. So it was a it was a very important moment in our movement history when that decision came down. And a couple things to mention about that 
and I remember it well, there was a shockwave that went through the country, and not just in terms of the LGBT community, but to society, many people in society in general, that the Supreme Court was saying that it was okay for a police officer to come into a man's bedroom and give him a criminal citation and arrest him, uh, that there was not a right to privacy that would apply in that context. It was quite shocking and horrifying to lots of people. uh, And it really was a motivating, galvanizing moment for the movement as a whole. A number of months later, there was a large amount of civil disobedience at the Supreme Court protesting that decision. And it happened at the same time as a lot of important, intense activism about AIDS and our government's horrifying ignorance and cruel ignoring of this public health crisis. So our movement as a whole had multiple motivators to get into the street and to get into legislatures and do all sorts of actions, including more calculated litigation. But fortunately, Bowers v. Hardwick was eventually overruled by the Supreme Court, and we'll get to that. But before we get into the specifics of more recent cases, let's talk about impact litigation. What is it, and how is it different from other lawsuits? Well, the idea is that it is litigation that is strategically chosen and planned in order to change a rule to affect lots of people. In in a sense, it's just like what the name sounds. So this is the kind of litigation that Lambda Legal does, and some of our sibling groups in the movement also do it. We look at particular issues, problems in the law that can be solved by a court decision, and tackling criminal sodomy laws is is a great example, Um, tackling restrictions on who can marry or what a military policy may be. These are problems in the law where the law discriminates. And the way we go about it is to research the issue, research the courts, look at what kind of support we might have, where and how, and then understand who is suffering under this unjust law. And we plan for it. So it's quite different from legal services law or the law that is generally practice by by most lawyers where you're representing a particular client to get a particular result just for that client. This is a type of litigation that is done on behalf of, of an individual or an organization, but also for the community as a whole, for the movement as a whole. And we do it with these balanced commitments. As lawyers, we have an ethical duty of zealous representation for our client the needs of the client always have to come first. But we plan the case in the context of the needs of the overall movement, the overall community. And we work with clients who decide that they want to be part of that kind of effort. And so, for example, they they look at the overall problem and we talk with them about the overall goal. It's not just a goal for them, it's a goal for everyone. And we plan it accordingly. We've run out of time. But we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks for joining us, Jenny. Thanks so much, Lucas. It's been fun. That's it for this third part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team. 
including youth participants Lucas, Sarah, Lil, Justin, Brian, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Alright, go get a piece of paper, 866-488-7386, or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Chris. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.